to draw your attention to two major things that Matthew is really trying to highlight, two, two primary exhibits in the book of Matthew. And so we're going to look at each of those things, and then at the end, we're going to tie them uh, together. We actually have a landline at church, and most of the calls we get fall into one of two categories. The first category is we get a lot of sales calls, people trying to sell us stuff, and it's usually robots, and I feel pretty good about hanging up on them. The second kind of call we get is people who uh, have said they've lost their job, or they're struggling financially or health-wise, or their family's struggling, and they need some sort of help, some sort of assistance. And uh, Steve, one of our ministers here, he handles all that. So somebody will call, and they'll say, hey, I'm struggling, I lost my job, and it'll be like, you want to talk to Steve? And so the other day, uh, Steve's fielding a call from someone who's asking for help. And, and you know Steve. You guys, most of you know Steve. He's a nice guy. Yep. That was a really subdued response, Steve. You may need to do a little work on your reputation. But the other day, we got one of these calls. And I'm like, okay, you want to you wanna talk to Steve? And so this person on the phone was really politely explaining that they were in a desperate situation. And is there any way that the church could help? And Steve just started yelling at this person on the phone. It was really rude. I'm in my office and I can hear him in his office and I pop out and I'm like, what in the world is going on? And then Steve called this guy on the phone a name that I cannot repeat in here. It would, it would make this sermon TVMA. And I'm like, Steve, this is what in the world? And then at the end of that call, the guy is still talking and Steve just hangs up the phone on him. It was bizarre. It was the most crazy thing. That didn't happen. You guys know that didn't happen, right? Of course you know that didn't happen. Steve would never do that. The funny thing about it is, is like some of you in here were like, well, maybe, I don't know. He might have a dark side. No, he would never do that. Steve has very good vibes. We get some interesting calls. We, do, we, really, we really do. No, Steve is very kind and compassionate. He would never do something like that if somebody is approaching him for help. And if he did, it would raise some tough questions, not just about Steve, but about the kind of church that would employ somebody like that. So I, I say that to point out a passage of scripture where something just like that happens, and it raises some weird questions about Jesus. So if you read, if you're along with the reading this week, last Tuesday, you would have read this story. And if you haven't been along with the readings, that's fine. We'll get you caught up to speed. But take out your Bibles, if you would, open them up, turn them on to Matthew chapter 15. And we're going to start in verse 21. Matthew chapter 15, starting in verse 21. This is the, this has got to be one of the strangest stories in the Bible. Not because there aren't a lot of strange things to explore in scripture, but because this particular story seems so out of character with the person we know and we have come to understand as Jesus. Jesus through the gospel of Matthew. This is what he says, verse 21. Leaving that place, Jesus withdrew to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This is not Israel. Jesus has been in Galilee. He's leaving Israel. He's going to a place that is not Israel. It's an important detail. Verse 22. A Canaanite woman from that vicinity came to him crying out, Lord, son of David. That's valuable to know because this non-Jewish woman understands who Jesus is from a Jewish context. She understands that he's a descendant of King David. And she's saying, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is demon-possessed and suffering terribly. Verse 23, Jesus did not answer a word. That's odd. I mean, to ignore this woman who's coming to him, pleading for help, pleading for mercy. Jesus just ignores her. That seems a little odd. Okay, Jesus, what, what's up? And then he says his disciples came 
came to him and urged him, send her away. She keeps crying out after us. All right, that seems even more directly rude to this poor woman who's just asking for help. Verse 24, he finally speaks up. He finally answers. He, he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Remember, he's not in Israel. I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Verse 25, the woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me. And this is what he responds. Verse 26, he replied, it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. <gasps> Gasp. Jesus is comparing this woman who's pleading to him for help to a dog? I mean, what is going on here? I've heard every explanation that people have. Uh, some people have said, well, you know, maybe dog isn't an insult uh, in first century. <laughs> nah, it was. It was an insult. It wasn't a kind thing to say. It wasn't a kind comparison. I literally heard this in a sermon one time. That they said, well, Jesus is clearly a sexist person, and he's wrong here. And I'm like, oof, ugh. that seems like a bold take to say Jesus is wrong when you're reading from a book that's primarily about Jesus being the guy. That seems like a bad take. And both of those explanations are wrong. Dog is an insult. Jesus is not sexist. There is an explanation. In fact, there's a really good explanation. There's an explanation that will just unlock the understanding that you have of this passage and make you not only feel good about what's being said here, but to feel good about Jesus. And if you want to know what that explanation is, you've got to participate in a disciple group because our disciple groups are going to be talking about that and I've included information about that in there. I am not going to give you the answer this morning. You're going to live with some tension. You can come up to me and talk to me afterwards. That's fine. There is a good explanation though. But her response is awesome. Look at this. She says, verse 27, Yes, it is, Lord. It is good for you to take the food for children and give it to dogs. It is good. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Verse 28, this is cool. Then Jesus said to her, Woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. So at the end, you know, Jesus kind of turns it around and does the right thing. But why, did, why was he so resistant? Join a disciple group and you'll find out. <laughs> Woman, you have great faith. The first exhibit, the first attraction that Matthew is trying to get us to understand is this idea of faith. And there are eight times give or take, eight times where Jesus comments on the quality of someone's faith. Not just faith, but their quality. Remember, there's a scale, right? There's, woman, you have great faith. But the, mo the bulk of the time, he's talking to people saying, oh, you have little faith. Oh, ye of little faith, the King James Version. And then there's two passages that say, oh, you have great faith. Do you remember we talked about one last week? Who was that? Oh, you have great faith? A soldier. A soldier. Uh, what kind of soldier? A Roman soldier. And, oh, you have great faith? What kind of person was this? A woman, a Canaanite woman. Do you know what nationality all the little faith people are? They're all Hebrew people. Every single time, Jesus is looking at the Hebrew people saying, you have little faith. You, what is going on? You don't get it. And these outsiders who don't have a history, who don't have access to scriptures, who haven't had thousands of years of God interacting with them through prophets, do get it. And these people who should have every reason to get it, don't get it. It's, it's kind of unbelievable. Our understanding of faith tends to have one of two modern misconceptions. One of two modern misconceptions. And some of us in this room hold these misconceptions. Um, one of them is that faith is a, a, a magical force. 
where the more you can muster, like it's some sort of internal muscle of the soul, and the more you can muster, then the more good things can be unlocked and unleashed in your life. And the less you have, then the less good things can be unleashed in your life. And there's a lot of even religious leaders who conceptualize faith this way. That's more similar to the movie Elf. Remember at the end of the movie, Santa can't get his sleigh off the ground? Why? Because the people in the crowd don't believe enough. And if they would just believe more, then Santa could fly. Well, what we're saying here is Jesus could fly. He could do amazing things if we just had enough faith. That's not how the Bible describes faith. That's not what it is. But, but it's easy to get that idea. It's even easy to get that idea based on some of the scriptures that we've read. But you have to read closely. The second idea of faith that is wrong, that we have a common misconception of, is that faith is the way to fill in what we don't know. And I understand this is even more common in churches, and I totally understand why this is true. But it'd be something like this. It'd be some sort of exchange. Maybe you're talking to somebody who doesn't believe in God. And they say something like, yeah, there is just no evidence that God exists. And a lot of well-intentioned, well-meaning Christians will say something like, well, yeah, there's no evidence. We know there's no evidence. That's why you have to have faith. Faith makes up for a lack of evidence. Well, that's not true. There is evidence that God exists. There's plenty of evidence. There's lots of good evidence that God exists. But faith is believing that what God has shown us is so real that we shape our lives around those ideas. That's what faith is. That what God has shown us is so real that it actually transforms the way we live and what we do and prioritize and pursue and how we spend our money and how we interact with anybody. Jesus told us that you can accomplish nothing by worrying. Nothing. You can't add an inch to your height by worrying. You cannot add a day to your life by worrying. You cannot add a dollar to your bank account by worrying. But we think, Jesus, are you sure? Because when I worry, it makes me feel like I'm taking a desperate situation seriously. It makes me feel like I'm doing everything I can. And Jesus says, you can't control that by worrying. It doesn't solve any problems. So we take that truth and we shape our lives around it. It's an incredibly difficult thing to realize that we have far less control over the circumstances of our lives than we wish we had and that worrying isn't going to really help it. It's a hard thing. It requires faith to shape our lives around that truth. Jesus says it's better for you if you bless your enemies, to bless them. You're thinking, I don't have any enemies. There's some people you would have a hard time blessing. You would have a hard time wishing good things in their life. So maybe you don't call them enemies, but there are people that they're, they're not your friends. And Jesus says, it's better for you as a human to bless your enemies. And we're like, are you sure, Jesus? Because it feels really good to curse my enemies and to wish harm on them and just hope bad things happen. Not real bad things, just minor bad things, like flat tires and stuff like that. And that's a hard thing to do, to take that truth and to shape our lives around that truth. But that takes faith. And we could give you example after example after example. But faith essentially says that Jesus has been right, God has been right every time before, I am going to go with him on this one too. So the crucial question of faith for us, it's this. You ready? Do we trust ourselves or do we trust Jesus? That's the question of faith. Do we trust ourselves or do we trust Jesus? I mean, we've never steered ourselves wrong before, right? No, of course not. We do all the time. We do things we regret all the time. 
And maybe we should stop trusting ourselves because we're so often wrong. I mean, we're wrong more than the weatherman. We got to realize that God has given us so much truth and so much reality. And yet every time we're at this crossroads of, hmm, should I do what God wants or should I do what I want? We're like, I'm going to try my way again. Oh, dead end. Well, look at that. And so the question of faith is, do we trust ourselves or do we trust Jesus? Hold on to that question. We're going to circle back to it and tie it into this other issue that Matthew brings up continually. So the second big attraction, the second big exhibit in the book of Matthew, and you'll notice this. In fact, if you were the type to underline your scriptures, you'll have underlined this quite a bit, is this phrase, kingdom, particularly kingdom of heaven. It's only used in Matthew. Kingdom of heaven. Kingdom. Kingdom doesn't have a place to go in my everyday life. You know, we don't talk about kingdoms. We don't think about kingdoms unless you're really into fantasy novels and dragons and stuff like that. Or some of you who wake up way too early to watch an American actress get coronated princess of, of the United Kingdom. Anybody do that? Anybody wake up at 6, 6 a.m. to watch that wedding? Just me, huh? No, I didn't, I didn't watch it. I didn't watch it either. But that's the only place the idea of kingdom kind of fits in our, our everyday life. We don't have a concept for it. But if you rewind 2,000 years and you're talking to the average everyday Hebrew man or woman, they have an understanding of kingdom. They get kingdom. They understand what kingdom means. They live in the kingdom of Israel. And the kingdom of Israel is subject to the kingdom of Rome. Rome, the global superpower. It was the kingdom of Rome. And Tiberius, the, the Caesar, was king. Now, you remember, some of you Bible scholars know that there was a guy named Herod, King Herod. You remember that? But he was just a figurehead. He had no power that Rome hadn't given him. So all he could do was with the, within the constraints of the Roman kingdom. So Tiberius. Let's talk a little bit about Tiberius. This guy... This guy was bad news. He was just in one long line of bad news empires because they, they ruled their kingdom through manipulation and domination. That's how they ruled. So manipulation, they would set up these little puppet kings like King Herod to try to manipulate the, the citizens into thinking that they had some autonomy. That's manipulation. But the domination piece, in, in fact, one historian a few decades after Tiberius here wrote that Tiberius executed somebody every single day. Not a day went by without an execution. True story, he would execute men, women, he would execute children, if he didn't like them, execute whole families. I mean, I guess if it's a habit, it's a habit, but my goodness. I wanted to give you one small example of his, uh, his cruelty. This is, doesn't result in a death, but I thought this was so interesting. Some historian thought this was so uh, valuable that he recorded it for posterity. So Tiberius, this guy, he's on vacation in his summer home in the island of Capri. And he's recently built this palace and he's down there enjoying the summer sun, I guess. And a local fisherman was excited to have the emperor there. And he brought the emperor an offering of his catch of fish for that day. Tiberius was so offended that a commoner would even have the audacity to approach him that he had that fisherman beaten with his own fish. Oh. Yeah. And I thought, well, that seems awfully cruel. And they get done and they say, do you have anything to say for yourself? And the fisherman, this is recorded in the history because this is such a great line, the fisherman was like, well, I am definitely glad I didn't bring him a crab. That was his response. <laughs> I thought that was pretty clever. Tiberius ordered that they go find a crab and have this man beaten with a crab. That's the kind of guy you're dealing with. Domination. 
anybody gets out of line, anybody does something I don't want them to do, just dominate them. And if it requires uh, death, then it requires death. That's the, that's the kingdom we're dealing with here. So they have this, this understanding of kings and kingdoms, but then Matthew codes his entire narrative with the language of kingdom and royalty and pageantry all through his narrative. Think back all the way to the birth. The birth has all these elements of royalty, not, not the least of which was these wise men, magi from other countries coming to offer tribute to the new king. And remember, they show up and they talk to the quote unquote king of Israel and they say, hey, Herod, where's the new king? And Herod says, what's that now? Who? What's new king? I don't like that at all. And so he tries to manipulate saying, hey, why don't you go find this new king and I'll come worship him too. And when that doesn't work, he tries domination and he says, let's just kill every child, every boy child to and under. Threat eliminated. That's, that's a Tuesday in the kingdom of Rome. That's just normal par for the course in the kingdom of Rome. So that's his birth. There's just a million aspects of it that are all coded to this idea of Jesus being king. And then you get all the way to the end of Jesus' life. In, at his death, he comes in on a royal procession into Jerusalem, Matthew chapter 21. He tells the governor, the representative of Roman power and authority says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you said it, man. He accepts this reality. He's given a crown of thorns. He's given a scarlet robe, of course, to mock him. He's, he's lifted up on a cross. They even make him a sign. You know what the sign above his head as he died said? King of the Jews. There was no doubt as to what he was claiming. And Matthew was trying to make that point explicitly clear. Jesus was claiming to be the king. And then, of course, the whole middle section of the story of Matthew. And it's just, it's just rife with references one after another of his kingdom. Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. And from that point on, he preached, he proclaimed the kingdom of, of, of heaven is here. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is here. I mean, he proves he's in charge of everything. He walks on top of water. Who's the Lord of creation? The guy that can walk on water. Who's the Lord of creation? The guy that can heal sickness. Who's the Lord of everything? This is him, and he's proving it left and right. Matthew's narrative is all about this idea that he is the king. And so the kingdom was fundamental to everything he's doing, right? But he's redefining the idea. You know what it's like in the kingdom of Rome. There's a better kingdom. There's a better king. You know what it's like in the kingdom of Israel. There's a new kingdom. There's a new king. So essentially what Jesus is saying as he proclaims this idea of the kingdom is he's asking this question. He's asking who or what is the ultimate authority in your life? Who or what is the ultimate authority in your life? Is Rome the ultimate authority in your life? And the Hebrew people he's talking to, some of them said yes. And they joined forces with Rome and they collected taxes and they oppressed their countrymen. And some people, they said, no, no, we're fighting against Rome to reestablish the kingdom of Israel. Who is the ultimate authority in your life? And maybe it wasn't a who for a lot of people. Maybe for a lot of people, it was, it was a what. Maybe it was money and power. Those are the ultimate authorities in their life. 
But Tiberius was going to learn an important truth, that within the borders of their kingdom, there existed people who were technically citizens, but clearly served a different king and clearly lived in a different kingdom. And when Tiberius and others would try to force their way through domination and manipulation, they would say, listen, you do what we want or we will put you to death. And these people in this different kingdom of heaven would very politely say, we accept death. That's fine with us. It was almost as if they believed that they served a king who was over death, who had conquered death. Because for some of us, death is the ultimate authority in our lives. We do everything we possibly can to avoid it. And if God were to ask us to put ourselves in harm's way to love someone else, we would say absolutely not because the fear of death is actually the ultimate authority in our lives not the king of the universe. For most of us, the ultimate authority really is the kingdom of self, right? It's the kingdom of Patrick. I'm the king and I sit on my little throne and I do what I want. There's this really strange passage I want to show you in Matthew chapter 19 if, if you want to open up there. But there's just three verses that exemplify what Jesus is trying to get us to understand about how these kingdoms work. It's not always just Rome. There's other things that rule our lives. In Matthew chapter 19 verse 12, check this out. Um, there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you are like, eunuchs? What's, uh, what's that? What, exa what exactly is eunuch? Well, you know, feel free to Google it. Look it up if you want to. It's, it's someone who has, whether voluntarily or not, chosen to forego sex. I I've never once heard a sermon on this verse. Never once. Some, there are people who forego sex for the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is saying. In this same chapter, he goes on to say in Matthew 19, verse 14, he says, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. It belongs to children? Well, yeah, but it belongs to the powerless. There are people who have chosen to forego the pursuit of power and control for the kingdom of God. But he goes on to say, same passage, Matthew chapter 19, verse 23. Truly I tell you, it is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. And then he repeats himself in verse, uh, verse 24. He says, no, for real, it's hard. It's like impossible. It's easier for a camel to be threaded through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And you're like, what? And even the apostles were like, that sounds crazy. Um, Jesus, you've lost it. And he's saying, no, no, no. There are people who have left the pursuit of wealth for the kingdom of heaven. Sex, power, money. There are people who have abdicated those things so that Jesus can be on that throne. That's what he's getting at here. This idea of kingdom is woven all throughout the gospel of Matthew. Money, sex, power. I think, I could be wrong here because I'm no crime expert, but I think about 100% of all crimes are committed for those three reasons. Money, sex, or power, or the fear of not having those things. And there are some people who have let go of those things so that they can live in a better kingdom and follow a better king. A different kingdom has come. A different king has been crowned. But I think we have to ask ourselves a question. Do we, do we live as if Jesus is the ultimate authority in our lives? Do we live that way? 
Now, that's a, that, that's a tough question, and I think we should rephrase that because I think there's a better way to understand what Jesus is getting at here. All the way back in Matthew chapter 7, he says this. He goes, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my Father. Not everybody who says, hey, I've got the Jesus shirt, I've got the Jesus bumper sticker, I'm singing in the choir, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do. Let's rephrase this question slightly, because I think this makes it, hits it a little home. Would someone who absolutely believed in the authority of the kingdom of heaven and the authority of King Jesus make the same choices that you are making? That's a convicting question for me. Would someone who believed in the kingdom of heaven and the absolute unequivocal authority of King Jesus make the same choices that you make? Because that's what reveals who's actually in charge of our lives. Faith defines the borders of the kingdom of heaven. You are not born into the kingdom of heaven. You can only be adopted into it. You are not born into it. You're born into the kingdom of Israel, but you're not born into the kingdom of heaven. You cannot earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. You could eventually earn your way into the kingdom of Rome if you jumped through enough hoops and filled out enough forms in triplicate. You cannot earn your way into the kingdom of heaven. Faith is a border of the kingdom of heaven, meaning do we arrange our lives as if Jesus is actually king? Everybody at some point will admit that Jesus is the ultimate authority in the universe. Everybody. The only choice you have is whether we do it now or later. And not only is that the only choice we have, but the benefits of doing it now far outweigh the benefits of waiting. There's nothing that we gain by waiting to make Jesus the ultimate authority and reshaping our lives around that truth. Matthew is the only gospel that records Peter walking on the water. You know the story, right? Other Gospels record Jesus walking on the water, but Matthew's the only one that records that detail of Peter walking on the water. And so Jesus is walking on top of the water. He's proving that he's king of the creation, right? Peter looks at Jesus and he's like, hey, let me come out there with you. I wouldn't have done that. I would have, I would have had on a couple life vests. I would have had my floaties on. Let me just ride out the storm. That's how I would have done it. And Peter, good for him. Hey, Jesus, call me out there with you. I want to come out there with you. And Jesus is like, come on out. And so Peter starts walking on the water. It's a cool story. And you're like, whoa, Peter, that's awesome. And of course, you know how it turns. As long as Peter's looking at the king, things are going good. Peter starts looking at the circumstances surrounding him. Things start going bad. And Peter starts thinking, right? You know that story, right? And what does Jesus say to Peter? Oh, you of little faith. I actually think Jesus said it in a really kind way because Jesus was a nice guy. And this is the coolest thing about Jesus because if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, man, that's me. I have not arranged my life in a way that would mean Jesus is the ultimate authority in my kingdom, in my life. This is what Jesus does for us. And I love this about Jesus. How else could he operate? But Jesus looks at Peter. Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And then he reaches down and lifts him back up. He doesn't, he doesn't yell at him. I mean, if I were Jesus, I'd be like, Peter, you're on your own. Swim to shore, man. I'm out of here. He didn't do that. He just reaches down, pulls him back up because that's the kind of king that we serve. We serve a gracious and loving and merciful king. And even when our faith is just teeny tiny, he still lifts us up. He still carries us along. And I think that's, of course, because our king had a crown of thorns. Our king had a coronation that was a cross. It couldn't be any other way. It's a merciful, generous, 
loving kingdom, but we need to work hard to make sure Jesus is at the center of that kingdom and not us. That's a hard thing to do. But I do serve a king that isn't going to beat me with a fish or a crab. I serve a king that's going to reach down and pick me up. And that's such a wonderful truth to remember.